The following program is a PBS Wisconsin original production. Record turnout in the spring primary selects two general election candidates for state Supreme Court. Dangerous winter weather strikes the state yet again. Recent incidents send a warning that anti-Semitism is alive and well. And flags fly at half-staff over the state capitol in honor of former Governor Tony Earle. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Tonight on Here and Now, Zach Schultz brings context to the primary election results. And a former Supreme Court justice gives us her take on the winners. History repeats itself as anti-Semitic acts increase, and physicians say patient care will suffer if Medicare payments don't improve. It's Here and Now for February 24. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin. Following Tuesday's primary election, two candidates for the Wisconsin Supreme Court head into campaigning for the general election set for April 4. Milwaukee County Circuit Court Judge Janet Protosawitz won 46.5 percent of the vote, and former Justice Daniel Kelly garnered 24.2 percent. They each spoke at their election night parties, focusing on the primary topic in this race and likely to come before the court, abortion. I can't tell you how I'll rule in any case, but throughout this race, I have been absolutely clear about what my values are. And that's because I believe the voters of this state deserve to know what a candidate's values are. I value a woman's freedom to make her own reproductive health care decisions. This is going to be an election like no other. Tonight, we join battle in the fight to preserve our constitutional form of governments against a novel and grave threat. Janet Protosawitz's promise to set aside our law and our Constitution whenever they conflict with her personal values cannot be allowed to stand. The high-stakes race only gets more attention from here. We turn to senior political reporter Zach Schultz, who joins us from the state capitol with more. And hi, Zach. Hello, Fred. So was this the primary election outcome that was expected? Well, I don't think you can be really too surprised, certainly not on the liberal side. Janet Protosawitz had the most money. She had the first commercial on the air. She had really consolidated a lot of Democratic support around her campaign pretty early on. Uh, the other liberal uh, Dane County judge, Everett Mitchell, tried hard to get some of that support, and he had a few people, but he never had the money to get his name out there. So seeing uh, Janet Protosawitz advance is not surprising. Maybe the margins for some people might have been surprising. On the Republican side, we knew all along this is going to be a very close margin. And it kind of goes against your conventional thinking, but the outcome here may fit, even though Jennifer Doro may have been the favorite ahead of time. And that's because we saw both Daniel Kelly's campaign, outside interest groups, and some liberals all attack Jennifer Doro to try and knock her down and take her out of the race, all for different reasons, but getting the same result of advancing Daniel Kelly on his part, because obviously he wanted to win, on the liberals' part, because they thought Daniel Kelly would be a much more favorable matchup for Janet Protosawitz in the general election. So even though she might have been favored ahead of time, this outcome's not terribly surprising, and the margin was so narrow that you could see it did come down to the end. So Tuesday's election saw record turnout for a Supreme Court primary. Um, what did turnout look like across the state? 
Well, it varied across the regions, and in some parts of the southern and you know more populous areas of the state, there was really high turnout. As you got to the northwest corner, there was lower turnout, and some of that fits with the conventional thinking of how these campaigns work. We're talking February 21st, the middle of winter. Generally, there's not a lot of attention paid, and this was really driven by advertising. How much did people even know that one there was an election, and two that it was this important? And so there isn't. It's harder to penetrate northern and northwestern Wisconsin with advertising dollars in the same way you can blanket southeast Wisconsin and southern Wisconsin and Dane County. So it's not terribly surprising. Plus in Madison you had a contested mayoral primary. In northern Milwaukee you had a contested primary on the Republican side for a special election in the 8th Senate District. So all those things kind of conspired to drive turnout in more populous regions. Did anything stand out about uh, partisan voting patterns? Yeah, absolutely. I'm not the first person to point out that there is definitely a split across the state in Republican voting trends. And we've seen this happen time and time again over the past 10 to 15 years where southeastern Wisconsin, especially where southeast Wisconsin talk radio dominates, has a different opinion of who they favor in a primary versus outstate northern rural Wisconsin. And it used to be southeastern Wisconsin was enough to dominate. That's how Scott Walker won his primary way back when to become the governor. That's how Rebecca Clayfish became lieutenant governor. But over time, that has shifted, and it's actually been playing out more and more that the rest of the state, outstate and rural Wisconsin for Republicans, actually can outnumber southeastern Wisconsin. We saw this again. Jennifer Dorrell's area of support was all in the Milwaukee suburbs in that area where talk radio really had endorsed her. But Daniel Kelly just was close enough there, and he really beat her pretty handily in the rest of the state, and that was enough for him to win by just a couple percentage points. So former Justice Kelly lost his last election for Supreme Court. Does that mean he's vulnerable here? Well, Democrats certainly think so. That's what they wanted to see. But in reality, we've seen lots of candidates historically across Wisconsin run after losing an election and try again. And the message that may or may not win the second time is not that we've rejected them before, that they've lost an election. It's that people know what their vulnerabilities are because they've polled against them in the past. So in this case, Daniel Kelly will point back to 2020 as saying there was a presidential primary on the same ballot, and he lost because Bernie Sanders and, and Joe Biden had a contested primary primary and on the other side Donald Trump wasn't contested and he says that's the majority of the margin. So really this is a completely different race. We shouldn't look to that as the roadmap for what may happen here because we don't have the same circumstances. Do you feel like there's any lingering effects from the kind of infighting in the Republican primary between Jennifer Darrow and uh, Daniel Kelly? Well, that remains to be seen, and that's something that Republicans are certainly watching and Democrats would like to take advantage of if they can in any way, shape, or form. We saw a similar thing play out along the same lines last summer when Tim Michaels won the gubernatorial primary among Republicans beating Rebecca Clayfish and attacking Clayfish heavily and investing in ads beating her in that. And Clayfish and her supporters weren't happy about that, and there really wasn't that unifying moment that came afterwards. And in this time around, we saw Daniel Kelly saying he would not support Jennifer Doro if she was the one to advance. He refused to endorse her before this. Jennifer Doro said that she would endorse Kelly, and she has since then, saying the Republicans need to unify around him. But there may still be Doro supporters who are a little miffed about the idea that Kelly wouldn't support their person going forward. Mm -hmm. So whether that fracture maintains and exists, or if Republican Party certainly wants to maintain the idea that the April 4th primary is more important than any fractures that may have existed 
existed before. But that's something to be aware of as we're, we're going forward in this campaign. Super quickly, spending in this race is expected to be stratospheric. Uh, do you know what the projections are and who's giving? Well, we're looking at at least 20 to 40 million dollars. It's going to be closer to past gubernatorial elections than anything we've seen in the Supreme Court. A lot of outstate, a lot of special interest money. All right, Zach Schultz, thank you very much. Thanks, Fred. It's said Wisconsin Supreme Court elections are nonpartisan in name only, and that seems more true now than ever. What does a former justice of the high court think of this trend? We turn to Janine Geske, who served on the court from 1993 to 1998. Justice, thanks very much for being here. Thank you, Frederica. It's my pleasure to be here. So, uh, what do I think? Oh, go yeah. ahead. <laughs> I mean, do you think we've come fully out of the gates with these just being, you know, kind of partisan politics now? Well, it appears that way. It appears that way by everything from endorsements to the money being put in to people talking about what their what their values and their beliefs are. Um, and it looks like, it, I think, to the electorate that people are running on issues on how they're going to vote. And to me, that is that is much more a legislative partisan race than it is a Supreme Court race. And so I find it very distressing. I want to talk more about that, but also relay to the viewers and remind them that uh, Judge Protosiewicz is campaigning um, as a supporter of abortion rights and says that the legislative maps are rigged. She maintains that voters want to know where, where people stand, but again, uh, you don't think so. Well, the problem with that, with that and I, I understand her, I mean, we all have our own beliefs. The problem is whether that's a, people believe it to be a signal on how she's gonna vote on the issue. And that's all fine if that's your values, but if you're taking an oath that you will follow the law, regardless of where it leads you in opinion, even if it's inconsistent with what you might vote for, that's what a judge should do. And so I, I think both both um, candidates are doing that in different ways of indicating uh, or hinting where they may vote. And I have no doubt that both of them would take their roles seriously, but the electorate is going to believe that the issue is on the ballot as opposed to the candidate. And we want judges that are going to look at each case independently and look at it and whether those, their supporters like it or not come to the conclusion that they believe is right. So former Justice Kelly um, isn't uh, exactly nonpartisan. He has worked for both the state and national Republican uh, parties and, and including advising on the fake elector scheme uh, here in Wisconsin. And yet he does say that this virtue signaling, as we've discussed, um, makes Judge Protosiewicz not committed to the constitutional order. Is that, and you think that's fair? No, I, I think both candidates are doing it in different ways. Um, and I think that there are not people who are um, downing where Justice Kelly um, indicates he might be on issues. He's doing it in different ways and he shows it in different ways about how he's 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 worked and who he's represented and what issues he's taken on. Um, I, I think that, you know, the question we have to ask them is, if your legal conclusion comes to a different result than what you're advocating now, are you willing to do that? And if you can't, then you shouldn't sit on the cases. And so I think that they're both both giving sort of the feeling about where they are on issues. And, you know, there's nothing wrong with that as long as voters understand that their oath is to decide sometimes inconsistently with what they might believe. Does it seem like a charade then to suggest that neither side would, quote, legislate from the bench? 
Well, I, I don't think it's a charade. I, I'm not doubting the integrity of the candidates. I, what I'm concerned about is how the campaigns get shaped so that people believe that's what we're electing. You know, and, and an example of that, I can we can point to Justice Kelly's view um, to Justice Hagedorn. And when he's referring to Justice Hagedorn, he talks about him not being trustworthy and not being reliable because he wasn't reliably conservative, which means that Justice Hagedorn came to a different legal conclusion than perhaps Justice Kelly would. You know, we we can't be calling people that traitors. Some people call them traitors. I don't know that Justice Kelly has done that, but certainly indicated that he is profoundly disappointed in Justice Hagedorn on the results of his votes on cases. And I think people have to understand that, that you have to do that when you're a judge and that people may not always be happy with the results. What happened to the days of uh candidates for the Supreme Court saying they couldn't talk about that because that issue might come before them. It sounds almost quaint today. Well, it was. I mean, it wasn't quaint. It was really true. And, you know, there are times that I've publicly talked about cases that my vote was not consistent with what I would have done in a, if I were voting, voting at the ballot box. And, and there are times sometimes I would write a concurrence or another opinion um, saying, I wish the legislature would look at this and change things, but this is the way I interpret it as a judge. Um, I, I think, you know, the, the risk that people are going to think that you're, you're electing people who are going to deliver a vote for you is unfortunate. And I'm, I'm actually becoming an advocate for appointment of judges. I think we've, we've gone way over the line of trying to elect fair and impartial judges that people can have confidence in. What does all of this mean, including the high stakes, high spending nature of this race, uh, reportedly uh, projected to be the most expensive judicial election uh, in the United States? What does all this mean for the integrity in your mind of the court? I think it really impacts um, the integrity of the court and the faith people have in the independence of the judiciary. And it, it ripples all the way down to the trial courts. I mean, it's not just the Supreme Court that the people are going to think that judges respond to their supporters and that certain parties going to win because of who is sitting in the bench on the bench um, this is not what our founders wanted when they when they made uh, Wisconsin a state where we elected judges I think they wanted judges who were involved in their communities that were out that people respected and knew and committed their lives to public service and and now we've got these ads and things giving us the sense that we're electing people who are going to represent certain interests. Janine Gasky, we leave it there. Thanks very much for your thoughts. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. In other state news, anti-Semitic acts increased by more than 450 percent between 2015 and 2021, according to the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. For one Holocaust historian in Kenosha, one of these acts came directly to her doorstep. Here and now student journalist Aditi Debnath has the story. It was in the morning around 8 o'clock, 8.30 in the morning, and I looked down and I just see this object and I picked it up and I was actually quite horrified. Not horrified, but I was shocked. Judith Bay Podlipnik's shock and horror came from discovering an anti-Semitic flyer on the driveway of her home in Kenosha. All the way down the street up until 75th Street, there were pamphlets scattered. The flyer claimed that Jewish people caused the COVID-19 pandemic. Faye Podlipnik says it was in a plastic bag 
and weighed down by rocks and a single penny. As a Holocaust historian, Faye Lipnick is used to studying anti-Semitism. I called the police and I offered them to, you know, the information and to provide them with the pamphlet. And they said that they already had it and they were informed of it. The Kenosha Police Department was able to identify the perpetrator and fine him just over $4,000, not for a hate crime, but for littering. Anti-Semitic acts increased by more than 450% between 2015 and 2021, according to the Milwaukee Jewish Federation. Rabbi Bonnie Margulis says that conspiracy theories that spread during the COVID-19 pandemic have caused an increase in casual anti-Semitism. It's become so normalized and so uh, ubiquitous, and so uh, people are so comfortable um, expressing those kinds of feelings and those, those thoughts uh, and attitudes. Margulis says that as the purplest state, Wisconsin demonstrates how political divisiveness can exacerbate all prejudices. It has really promoted um, some very narrow and tunneled vision kind of thinking and um, has really made it difficult for people to be able to reach across divides and uh, see each other as human beings. According to the FBI, Jewish people have consistently been the most targeted group for religious hate crimes. I think in a very divided, a very polarized political environment, what you see uh, is an increasing reluctance uh, for people to call out anti-Semitism within their own uh, political camp. UW-Madison sociology professor Chad Goldberg says anti-Semitism stands out for its subtlety and pervasiveness. He says that there are centuries-old anti-Semitic tropes that still exist in American culture. We should remember, for example, that in the Middle Ages, uh, Jews were accused of poisoning wells. Jews were blamed for the plague. Uh, so those motifs, because they have been around for such a long time, because they still circulate in the culture at some level, make Jews uh, really uh, sort of well-suited for the role of scapegoats. According to experts, the lack of widespread condemnation of anti-Semitism alienates Jewish people from their community. Judith Faypod Lipnick says her experience in Kenosha has made her distrustful of others. My father, who was a Holocaust survivor, warned me consistently, anti-Semitism is alive and well. It may be under the radar, it may be under the covers, but it's there. Always be careful. And it's going to come back. For Here and Now, I'm Aditi Devnath in Kenosha. With talk in Washington about cutting back on so-called entitlement programs like Social Security and Medicare, doctors are crying foul about how Medicare reimbursement rates they get are already not keeping pace. Physicians have been lobbying Congress over what they get paid from Medicare, saying patient care could be at risk. For more on this, we talk with Dr. Jerry Halverson, a physician and chair of the board of the Wisconsin Medical Society. And doctor, thanks very much for being here. You're welcome. Thanks for having me here. So for for a really long time, doctors have been talking about how Medicare reimbursement rates were too low. What's the current status? Well, we've been having problems with this for 20, 30 years. It's, it's been a long time. And uh, this is something that we would go to Congress and talk about because, as we'll talk about, if, if our practices aren't being funded, we're not going to be around to be able to take care of patients. Uh, so a few years back, um, there was an opportunity to change uh, the dialogue, to change how the payment is, is happening. Uh, and we jumped on that uh, because it hadn't changed in 20 or 30 years. Uh, unfortunately, that is still 
not, not adequate. Uh, so we've obviously been through a very difficult time the past three years, yeah. um, and uh, we've actually had payment cuts that are set to go into place uh, this year already, and this is when we're already at rates that are basically, you know, uh, 1980 types of rates that have not been adjusted, uh, let alone adjusted for, uh, for the inflation that we've had. If you look at real dollars, uh, physicians have already had a 22% cut in the past 20 years. Describe how that affects patient care. That absolutely affects patient care. Our goal is to have uh, the patient uh, be able to have choice and be able to see the doctor that is close to them, the doctor that they, uh, that they choose. Um, and what happens uh, is, uh, particularly in rural areas or underserved areas, uh, we have doctor's offices uh, who are basically small businesses. Uh, and if they have primarily uh, patients uh, that are that are Medicare that is uh, that the, the the payment is under what they would get for other types of insurance products you have choices you can either take less Medicare uh, or uh, ultimately uh, sometimes physicians have to close their practices and when they close their practices they probably move to less rural areas where they can have um, where they can be busier uh, and that that choice uh, for those for those patients is lost, and so what happens is the patient has fewer choices, and oftentimes the patient has to drive further to get the care that they need. Now, Congress did give tens of billions of dollars in relief funds to clinicians uh, during the pandemic, uh, but that was all used during that period of time. Yeah, you know, the pandemic, operating in a pandemic, uh, as we've all learned, uh, has been challenging, and with a lot of the other increases in pay uh, that we've seen uh, from the government, a lot of that paid for new uh, requirements or new administrative burdens that they kind of put in our way. So overall, real dollars, as I've said before, we've probably been cut about 20%. And when you're, um, when you're trying to keep a practice on uh, open, when you're hiring nurses, you're hiring office staff, it's a small business. Uh, it's just not sustainable. How hard is it to engender sympathy for kind of highly paid physicians, even though they are regarded as the healthcare heroes of the past several years? Yeah, I, I think people really, you know, we continue to talk about this being really patient options. Uh, if the physician isn't there, the physician is an important part of the community. Obviously, they deliver health, which is, as we've learned over the past few years, is, is invaluable. If the physician is not there, the practice is not there, uh, the patients suffer. The patients aren't able to see their, their, trusted, uh, their trusted doctor that they've gotten to know over time. As I said, they have to drive further. Um, and oftentimes, if you make care less convenient, care doesn't happen. So what happens is that people don't get care until it's more catastrophic care or oftentimes until it's further down the line where, where less is able to happen uh, that, that, can, that can arrest it. So what happens is uh, once the physicians go, if that's what happens, patients pay the price. So apart from these specific um, lobbying efforts around uh, these reimbursement rates right now, uh, what is the feeling among the medical community and these physicians about these discussions in Washington about cutting entitlements, as they're called, uh, like Medicare? 
Well, this is really an important way for patients to get access to good care. And our hope is to continue to be available for patients to have choices to go to the physician or other healthcare professional that they want to in a way that's convenient. So when I think about these numbers being cut, obviously we think about the rates being cut. We think about the idea that uh, it's going to be more difficult for people to get treatment. Uh, and as we've seen, uh, particularly early on in the pandemic, when people put treatment off, bad things happen. So how have uh, the lobbying efforts been met by uh, congressional members, particularly from Wisconsin? So we visited all of the offices uh, that were open to us. We visited most offices. And, and even in a time that's so contentious as this, there's a lot of agreement. There's a lot of agreement that Medicare should be held safe. That's what we're being told. We're being told that uh, patients should continue to have choice. We're being told that physicians should be able to take care of patients with Medicare without having to go out of business, without worry of keeping the lights on. So uh, whether you're Democrat or Republican, you're agreeing with this. At least that's what they're saying to us. All right, Dr. Jerry Halverson, thanks very much. Yeah, thank you. And finally tonight, we remember former Governor Tony Earle, who passed away Thursday after suffering from a stroke earlier this week. As the 41st governor of Wisconsin, the former Democratic leader leaves a legacy known for his work on environmental issues and promoting LGBTQ rights. Responding to his passing, Governor Tony Evers said, quote, Tony was always a staunch defender of our state's proud traditions, including conservation, and his passing is a significant loss for our state and for all who had the fortune of meeting and serving with him. He was first elected to the state assembly in 1969 and served until 1974. Following Following his time in the legislature, he was a state cabinet secretary for two departments under three different administrations. He was elected governor in 1983 and served one term. After elected office, he went on to serve on many boards, including Common Cause Wisconsin, where he worked on campaign finance reform. In a statement, his four daughters said of their father, he would encourage anyone he knew to actively engage in positive change. Tony Earle was 86. For more on this and other issues facing Wisconsin, visit our website at pbswisconsin.org and then click on the News tab. That's our program for tonight. I'm Frederica Freiberg. Have a good weekend. Funding for Here and Now is provided by the Focus Fund for Journalism and Friends of PBS Wisconsin.